Hey, SaaS Insiders, welcome to the show. I'm your host, Vlad Hu, and today we're talking with Martin Martinez about his incredible story of how he's built and he's currently running an eight-figure SaaS business fully bootstrapped using external team. I'm excited and I hope you are as well. And here's a clip from today's episode. So running a business that makes money is the most valuable company you can you can build. I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, we recently hired PwC, PricewaterhouseCoopers, to give us some advice about offshoring our company and doing a bunch of stuff. When we told them our revenues, they were saying, oh, yeah, we work with companies your size all the time. You know, like they're a big, you know, multinational, right? So, of course, they're going to, you know, eight-figure, you know, turnover is, is nothing. But when we told them our profits on our margins, on our EBITDA and our dividend distributions, they couldn't believe it. They said, what? You make money? You're a software company. You're not meant to make money. They could not believe it. Now, a company of the size of PwC. This is just a small taste of Martin's story. And listen to this episode to learn all the juicy details. This episode is sponsored by the SaaS Insiders Studio. We help SaaS founders build their minimum viable products, MVPs, launch quickly, find a product market fit, and grow from there. SaaS Insider Studio works with non-technical founders that are on the pre-seed or seed stage to help them execute on their product vision. To learn more, go to my LinkedIn profile that you can find in the description to this episode and shoot me a direct message there. All right, let's jump straight into today's episode. Today with me, I have Martin Martinez, the CEO and co-founder of Meet Alfred. And today we're going to talk about more about his journey with his company, some of the thoughts about bootstrapping versus getting funded, and what's the best way to lead a company, the SaaS company in 2022. With that said, Martin, thank you for coming to the show. Hi, Vlad. Thanks for having me. For those who might not know you yet, if you can give just a couple minutes your background, where you're coming from, and what you're working on right now. Sure. Well, uh, as you mentioned, uh, I'm the CEO and founder of Meet Alfred. Uh, it's a LinkedIn leading LinkedIn automation platform. I'm a serial entrepreneur. Uh, this is kind of my current venture, but I've been involved in multiple uh, different types of businesses. Uh, my career originated in, in gaming, uh, in casinos, uh, and it's evolved um, into now software. So it's a, it's a full spectrum of, of entrepreneurship. But yeah, currently, uh, you know, working in SaaS. Interesting. And when it comes to Meet Alfred, uh, we, we talked a little bit about off-air, but it looks like you've actually bootstrapped the whole company from the ground up to now, I think, like eight figures, right, in ARR. Correct. So originally, you know, my SaaS story is one of those that I was scratching my own itch. Uh, back in 2014, uh, 2015, uh, I was running a, a consulting firm. And, you know, we, we had a, a portfolio of consultants and we were helping them get and generate leads. We were using LinkedIn as a primary source of business. Over time, it, it scaled. So we used different virtual assistants to kind of do a lot of the outreach within LinkedIn. 
And at some point, I thought this is a very repetitive task. Is there a software available to automate this? And there was plenty of, of um, tools out there, some worth mentioning, uh, DuckSoup, uh, which is kind of one of the OGs of this industry. And uh, unfortunately for me, because I'm a, I'm a pretty plain vanilla kind of guy, I, I didn't like how their software worked. It, it didn't do what, what I wanted to do. And it also wasn't that user-friendly. I explored the idea of building a product for myself, you know, so we explored that. We put a project on Upwork originally, uh, came across a developer, uh, and he quickly put together the first, ver the first version of our product, and it worked instantly. We were very successful straight away, kind of scaling. We didn't, have, we didn't need as many virtual assistants. And as, as the time went on, a lot of our customers in the consulting firm were asking, oh, you know, can you help us get business through LinkedIn? I said, well, look, you know, we use this software, why don't you use it yourself? So we had lots and lots of customers in the consulting firm and we gave them access to them and their team. And in order to do that, we did it as a Chrome extension. So we published it on the Chrome store. It was around 2017 when we did that. And we just left it there so our customers could use it. And around March 2018, something like that, could be getting the years wrong, but around that time, we found ourselves with 6,000 users using our platform uh, for free uh, on the Chrome store. Uh, so we said, hang on a minute, there might be a business here. Why is there so much demand? Uh, and it really came down to the fact that it was a very easy to use product, very user-friendly. And that kind of was the basis of my own needs. And it became a success from there. Now, I also know DuckSoup myself, because we work with a lot of our customers, helping them build something like DuckSoup. We're just integrated mm -hmm. with DuckSoup as much as possible. But I see a lot of people with the story just like you they they go and find a developer to build something but they they really rarely get this like virality of their product which just got explodes and gets the interest like from your experience when you look back what do you think you did a bit differently to to differentiate from everyone else and to actually start getting attention to your product well look i don't want to take all the credit but you know i like I said, it was a very, very easy to use product. So the way we built it, the way it integrated to LinkedIn, you know, there were buttons right on the platform that were never there before that were easy to kind of use. And just the way we kind of carried it was was very uh, user focused. So that was one of the key things. This So, so to me, it's almost like a that product led idea, which is all about making a really good product and the customer appreciates it. Uh, the second thing was that we kind of, we created a persona around the product. So if you think of DuckSoup or you think of other brands, you know, to me, software is a commodity. So what we wanted to do is create a persona that people would attach themselves to and feel like, oh, this is my new employee, uh, you know, that's working for me, that's doing all of these. And that's kind of where the brand really helped kind of build its um its its growth um this the second the third thing should be that it was free for a long time so it was you know five six months the product was there people could use it and you know it kind of validated itself um you know very quickly because it was free i mean it, you know when when something's free it goes viral so so those are the th three key ingredients that i think kind of gave us that platform that foundation of customers you know and we were you know if you want to add a fourth we were one of the early new companies that were in this space. Now, DuckSoup was before us, 
but you know we were probably this third or fourth player in the market at that time so it's kind of almost at the beginning of an industry um so we were fortunate in those four elements uh some of them were strategic decisions some of them were a little bit of luck and timing uh but that's kind of what got us to that foundation of five six thousand users really really quickly now they didn't all become customers when we actually turn on payments but you know that was kind of the foundation Speaking of turning like just users into customers, right? Now you have a foundation, you have a user base that uses it for free. They love it. It's free. But when it comes to like, let's introduce the payment plan. Like how did this transition work? Can you share with me? Maybe there were some challenges or how would you address this thing to get as many of existing customers to, well, to, to become paid users? Right. Well, first and foremost, even for users can churn, right? Because they have a need for the product and then they don't stop using it. So although we say 6,000, yes, there were 6,000 registered users. Maybe there was 5,000 active users at the time. So what we we did is, okay, once we found ourselves with the, the inception of a business, what we wanted to kind of think about is, all right, what is the business model? We obviously looked at SaaS. That was the first decision we wanted to make because we didn't want to pay, like charge one time or anything like that. It was it was more of a, a SaaS play, uh, subscription monthly or whatever. Then the second was really pricing. And then what we looked at is competition and saying, okay, well, what is DuckSoup charging? What are the other players charging? And the ethos that we had from the very beginning was to give more for less. That's still very much present today where we want to, out-feature our competition and offer it at a competitive price. So that more for less focus has been a driver of our um, subscription model. Was there any challenges? Not, not, I mean, from a technical point of view, I'm not a technical founder at all. I couldn't code to save my life. So it was more about the developer integrating to Stripe and doing the tests and then kind of rolling that out. We had a very high conversion rate at the time, you know, I would say that out of those 5,000 active users, we probably had about 3,000 customers. So that to me is a very high conversion rate. So what it meant to me is that there was the, the product stood on its own two feet, that we wasn't just because it was free, it's because it delivered value, but it allowed us to give us the financing to be able to kind of continue developing the product. And that was quite important because we were running a consulting firm. Now we're running a software company. Well, how are we going to fund this? And we wanted to very much focus on, on customer uh, customers paying for it. That is really interesting when you mentioned that, well, I'm not a developer myself, right? So I know for short-term projects, like make something for free. Sometimes it's it's easy to just get some like individual developer, freelancer, maybe an agency to build it. But when you build your software company, it's a much longer project and much more wrong decision can be made, right? So you need to be very careful i'm curious how do you see yourself like operating in this uh in this company without being technical like do you have a technical co-founder or you just develop a really good model of actually communicating with your technical team right again you got to think about it from the way my my story evolved like i developed a product for me so mm -hmm. my relationship with my developer by the way neither my partner is also non-technical he's actually like he barely uses iPhone. I mean, I mean, he does, but you know, that's not his technology is not his forte at all. He's in finance. So my story began needing a product for myself. I didn't need to know the technical side. I knew what I needed the product to do. And the developer went on and did it. One of the benefits, one of the things that people talk about a lot is this MVP, creating a minimal viable product. Uh -huh. To me, you know, one of the challenges is that if you're a perfectionist like me, 
you will not launch a minimum viable product for a long time because you feel embarrassed. However, when the product is for your own use or it's free, you can launch the worst product and it doesn't matter because nobody's paying for it, but at least you're getting valuable feedback. So when I look at MVPs and I advise other startups to think about MVPs, it's like just public, just push the code out, get people to use it since it's free. They don't, their opinion matters, but it doesn't matter as much as a paying customer. So you could just continue to roll, listen to what they want, build it and so on and so forth. That kind of gets you from zero code to a, a free product to a paid product. That's kind of the journey that I would potentially advise other people to take because mm-hmm. a lot of people like myself, the MVP is just never good enough. You know what I mean? So it's like, okay, mm-hmm. well, I'm never going to charge. I'm never going to ship this. I'm never going to do it because it's not good enough. However, if you if you sh- ship an inferior free product, it doesn't matter because you're not you're not too worried about the customer feedback. Martin, I think, I think the question that's really interesting for non-technical SaaS founders that are listening, SaaS insiders, is how do I actually communicate with developers what I want to achieve? Because it looks like you've got quite a good connection with people you work with. But a lot of times people just complain that, so I have this brilliant idea, but technical people just don't get it. They build something that I'm not, I wasn't asking for, you know, it's almost like they built what I set them to build, but that's not what I wanted, you know, in a way. Right, right, right. How, Look, how my, you- my first unoriginal developer was from India. So there was a, not a language barrier because they speak English fluently, but there is an accent barrier. I mean, I'm Latino background and he's Indian background. Like, you know, there's a different disconnect in the way we actually speak. And, but to me, what I think is most important is to set reasonable expectations, right? And to want everything for little money is unreasonable in my in many cases, which is what a lot of ha- times happens that startup founders, they only got a little bit of, uh, let's say $10,000 or $5,000 or whatever, and they're trying to deploy it into a development. And their expectations is that they're going to have a finished product and it's just unrealistic. Uh, so the first thing that will be for, for me to say is that you need to set reasonable expectations. And reasonable is a very, it's very subjective, right? You know, what you think is reasonable might be different to me. But I can tell you that now running a software company for five years, I want everything done yesterday and my developers need three months. (laughs) So it's, it's bridging the gap between my expectations, which is do it now. It can't be that hard. It's a button here or a link there. Like it can't be that difficult to appreciating that, these people know what they're doing. They need certain time. And it's not just about putting the link there. It's about testing and testing mm. and deploying. You know, th- th- there are some layers. So for me, I can tell you that I have evolved significantly from day one, talking to one developer out of India to now having a team of 15. It- it- it's it's an evolution that, you know, it's taken a lot of time in me at really understanding and appreciating how hard it is to code, how time-consuming it is to code, and how testing is an element of the development process that is normally discounted. It's not really considered. Yeah, communication is key, but having clear expectations and them being reasonable, then I think that's um, that's paramount. No, that's gold. That's really gold. When it comes to actually selecting the people you want to work with, since you're not technical, right, you cannot conduct a technical interview ask them how to do this or how to do that because you don't know yourself, right? It wouldn't be. How do you know that this is the people that you can trust and you can work with long-term? Did you have stories when it didn't work out maybe? And what did you learn like from those experiences? Well, I definitely have stories. 
I think I've been a little bit fortunate. So I, again, I do want to say that uh, an element of luck is important in, in finding someone that is not over-promising and under-delivering, which is what a lot of people experience. I think that when you're selecting someone, re- regardless of what they do, whether they're technical in marketing, and whatever it is, is that you you should try to feel a sense of trust from the first experience, the first in interaction. Mm-hmm. Can you do you believe what they're saying? Are they just spinning stuff because you're completely ignorant and they're trying to make themselves, you know, be more than what they really are? So, so to me, I'm very good at that uh, EQ side of you know business, which is emotional intelligence and how do I interact with people and really getting a feel for what people are saying, whether they're you know pulling my the wool over my eyes or or they're telling the truth. So that, I think that you know you got to be savvy in that space. The second thing is, and I'm not going to, I don't want to discriminate in any way, but for example, my personal experience in people in the Indian, Pakistan, Bangladesh region from a developer perspective, they say yes a lot. They say, yes, it can be done and because they are really hardworking people that want to deliver great work. But they always, always, in my experience, have always underestimated things. So when they say, yes, it can be done, it's because it can be done, but can it be done in a week? They will say yes, but in reality, it takes four weeks. So what I'm trying to say is that part of the world, you have some Mm. communication barriers, but you also have a cultural difference, which they want to make sure that the customer is always happy. So they will say sometimes things that don't, they're not totally true because they're trying to make you happy. To answer your question directly as to how to select people, I think having a good rapport is important. And I would say having small deliverables is the way you can test you know, performance. What I say is like, can you do this? They'll say yes. And then by when? If they do what they said by when they said it for the price they said, you can take the next stage. And the next stage after that, and so on. So let them prove to you over short stints that they can actually deliver rather than say, yes, the project is this big. We're going to do it in four weeks and it costs this little. It's just not realistic. As I said, I have zero coding knowledge and experience. So for me, it's all been about ongoing communications and trying to give lead way to them to appreciate that it takes time to do things, but also be firm in what I want. And if it doesn't work out, you know, just cut your losses early, but don't give a whole project if they haven't really proved themselves that they can write, write one line of code. You brought some really important points I want SaaS insiders to pick up. One of them is cultural differences exist, especially when you work from people from the opposite sides of the world, right? And it's not so much about like whether they are hardworking or not. It's more about how they communicate, right? If you knew in advance how people are communicating, where yes is actually maybe in some cultures and vice versa, right? You can you can manage your expectations better. That's one thing. And second is the gradual building trust with small small steps helps understand whether whether you can work together. I really want everyone to pick this up because we have so many horror stories, you know, when people start and say like, we're going to build six months worth of project and they found those great guys, they say they can do it. So we're going to try it, you know, and then it just whatever happens. But I'll give you I'll give you a, the the opposite story to that, right? So I've been operating the business for over five years now. At the beginning of 2022, I had five developers, full time developers working on this project. At one was from India, 
One was from Pakistan or Bangladesh, and the other three were based out of Colombia. Within So that was in January. By February, we were down to two. Now, a platform like this, it, you can't run with two developers. It's just not possible. So we found ourselves in a recruitment drive that we needed to kind of get people as quickly as possible. We hit a massive wall. And I kind of, I'll share that wall with you. Essentially, wall number one is that we grew our product over the years through acquiring different companies and code. So essentially, mm. by the time the beginning of this year came, we had a bit of a Frankenstein product, which had different code bases from different eras that all worked together perfectly. But, it, you know, it's not the latest version of Node.js. You know what I mean? I'm still using, I was using Python version one, you know, okay, whatever. So that was a big, big challenge is how do you recruit when the product is multi-layered? from a code base perspective. Number two, the second wall, and this is like a domino of walls. Second one was, I'm not technical. So how can I hire a technical person? And I'm not a recruiter either. So, you know, like I don't have certain areas of expertise on how to hire. The third wall was when I asked my team who went from five to two to help me hire, they were too busy and they had all the technical knowledge, but they didn't have the business time or anything like that to help me hire. So we, we were, you know, we we stop all development. It was just maintenance mode. So then, what we did is we und- we we decided why don't we look at outsourcing the development? And we, instead of hiring people, we were looking to hire an agency partner. And we went through a very extensive recruitment process. We had about a hundred applications for our project because people know you know how big it is and how important it is. I had to cut that down to about thirty just based on their response to my um, my project. And from there, I had to call it down to 10. And from there, I did all of the initial stage one interviews. Now, there's 10 interviews that I did were all about, can I trust these people over Skype, over Zoom? Can I build a rapport? Do they understand what I'm trying to say? And, and so on. So I kind of wanted to do that. And then I narrowed it down to about four based on my first initial experience. The the technical team was not involved at all in this process. I then handed these four to them to review. And then if they approve them, they will then meet them from a technical meeting perspective. That was the second round of meetings. And then after they said, yeah, we like this one or two. And then I went through a reference, you know, give me your references, customers, let me talk to them. And then we nailed the one that we actually wanted to work with. Now, that whole exercise took the best part of three months. But now, but we grew the team from two to 15, essentially in a two-month period. And now the product is fully, you know, uh, supported. We're actually rewriting 60% of the code. So it's all one consistent code base. So there's a lot of things that we needed to do. But this evolution, you know, from being in-house developers to fully outsourced, it'll be finalized in January, but it has been a game changer for us. And, and I hope that that's valuable to your audience. That is really, really, really interesting here. So if I got this correctly, you basically had an agency to augment your existing team, right? That was the the, the idea is that let instead of having two in-house developers, have two co-CTOs. And they would manage a third-party agency with a full-fledged team that has all of the resources that, you know, we never had a DevOps person in-house, but you kind of need a DevOps person with a project our size. We never had proper quality assurance team. You kind of need that for a product our size. So 
what we try to do is not only are we recruiting, but they're, they're taking all the burden of recruitment and managing and, and training the staff, but also giving us the flexibility that we need and the breadth of team members to be able to run a company our size properly. And actually, the, it had, this transition has been so successful that it's going to be 100% my model moving forward, which is completely outsourcing the development aspect with in-house technical team that I can trust, that I can you know, talk to on a regular basis because I'm not going to manage 15 people from a technical point of view, but I can manage two. And then they on, on, uh, on top manage the rest. And, and I, that model is, is really, really useful for someone that is non-technical. That's fascinating. Um, how, do you, how do you know like the first round, for example, if I could pick a little bit more deep into this. The first round, when you're just trying to understand whether they are on the same page in terms of vision and how you want it to take off. Like, how do you know that's, that's, that's like, what kind of conversations do you have with, with, with technical people? Well, for me, it was all about really understanding what they offered and as a, as a service, because we were, we, we didn't need just humans to code. We needed a, a outsourcing solution. So it was more about really understanding. Don't worry about what I do. What exactly do you do? And then, learning from you know having in-depth conversations about what their product or service is then i can understand whether it's a fit for my needs or not so that was kind of what i was trying to do with these top 10 agencies uh, that we were discussing with when it transitioned to the technical side i was completely not even in the meetings i let that left that to my team but what i asked them is don't worry about all of just the technical side is could you work with these people do you actually think that they, you could be teammates. And that was the priority number one that I had because to me, culture is very important in, cult, in the way teammates work. So if you can satisfy number one, then the question is, can do they have the technical capabilities? And, and developers know, you know, <laughs> they know if the other guy is, is talking crap or they know what they're talking about, right? So it was very apparent that the, we could narrow down these, these things very, very quickly if you had certain objectives that you needed to meet. In my case is, do I trust them? Can I work with them? I mean, this is me handing over my baby to someone else. Mm. Like it's like my kid is going to college, like, you know, kind of mentality. So that was the struggle that I needed to get past. The technical team needed to think about, you know, are these good teammates and can they do what they say? No, I'm, I'm actually passionate about this topic as well, because when I try to collaborate with non-technical founders so we can come up and actually build some meaningful SaaS, it's always a question like, how do we make this work? Because I also put culture first as well, but then the technical side. And sometimes people don't have like those two technical co-CTOs internally, right? So I'm trying to kind of navigate this. So really curious about this. And we can probably talk like forever about this, but one topic that I really wanted to cover as well is funding versus bootstrapping. Because I know your story, you've been bootstrapping for, for over five years now with this company from the beginning as it is now in a pretty sizable company, a lot of times, at least that's the general, let's say, conventional wisdom is if you're bootstrapping, you're going to be small. <laughs> you know, If you want to go big, you need to raise this kind of funding round. So my question to you, what do you think is the thinking process when you start? And when do you think capital injection is actually actually making sense to people? Because you haven't, haven't requested that, but we talked about a little bit off air that there is a place there is a place for investing in SaaS. So can you share a bit a bit of that? Right. So look, 
money has to come from somewhere. You can't develop a product. You can't take it to market if you have no money. So it obviously, the start point is what are you, what's your financial situation? What is your contribution to the business? In my case, it wasn't technical. So it had to be funding or it had to be the direction and the product and whatever else. So my, my contribution to the business was obviously the funding side in the early stages. Now, in the early stages, I can tell you the very first version of our product was $200, right? That's the main, like it was one function, you know, it was viewing profiles on LinkedIn. That was pretty much it. And then it kind of evolved from there. And I put another couple of hundred bucks and this and that, and it evolved, you know, over time to what it is today with over 50,000 lines of code and, you know, uh, 15 team members running it. But the reality is that it's very hard for me to generalize when everybody's starting point is so different. You might be able to get some some money from your your parents, you know, your friends. Uh, you might be a, already a, a successful entrepreneur that has already some funding, or that you are you've been so successful before that people want to invest in you. So it's not an easy answer. But what I look at is how much of this company do I own, right? Mm -hmm. And what's my objective? Is it cash flow or is it an exit? I, I try to, you know, make things as simple as that. How much of this company do I own and how, how much do I want to keep? And do I run this business for cash flow, cash flow or do I want an exit? Answering those questions really direct you as to the best path forward. So, for example, if you're looking for an exit, if that's your end goal, because you're dreaming about this million dollar exit, what you're trying to do is get your product to market as quickly as possible trying to be successful as quickly as possible. There is no time for you to, you know, for you to kind of figure it out and evolve and pivot and all this type of stuff. You need to hit the ground running. So in those instances, or unless if you have no money, you want to have some angel investors or you want to have some early stage, you know, investments when you've kind of developed and proven the product. And then you kind of go up the ladder all the way to the VCs. But to me, it's the starting point that dictates that direction. And if your idea is, I'm going to launch this, I don't see myself running it forever, I'm going to exit this in two years or three years or whatever your, your timeline for it is, then you kind of almost force into that because anybody that puts money in has a time frame of between two and seven years. By the seventh year, they want to get their money back in multiples. So that's kind of one direction. My direction I have two kids, I have a wife, I have a dog, you know, I have things to take care of. An exit, I've had successful exits before. I know what that looks like, not in software, but in other businesses. So I know what it, having a chunk of money in the bank feels like and all of that. That's not what I'm trying to say here. My, I think cash flow is king. So running a business that makes money is the most valuable company you can, you can build. I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, we recently hired PwC, PricewaterhouseCoopers, to give us some advice about offshoring our company and doing a bunch of stuff. When we told them our revenues, they were saying, oh, yeah, we work with companies your size all the time. You know, like they're a big, you know, multinational, right? So, of course, they're going to, you know, eight-figure, you know, turnover is, is nothing. But when we told them our profits on our margins and our EBITDA and our dividend distributions, they couldn't believe it. They said, what? You make money? You're a software company. You're not meant to make money. They could not believe it. Now, a company of the size of PwC doesn't often deal with software companies of our size that are profitable. So that gives you some perspective. They couldn't believe it. So for me, every month, 
there's money in the bank. Every month I can take care of my family. So to me, my, my drive and direction is very, very different. So I hope that kind of answers your question as to how do you go from A to B mm. and then from B to C. But it really comes down to whether you're running it for cash or whether you're running it for a potential exit. And, you know, big is in the eye of the beholder. You you, you said those words, like you want to, you know, if you want to make it big, you're going to have to raise capital. Well, what's big? I mean, is a million dollars a year big enough for you? Is it 10 million? Is it a hundred? Like what is big? And it's all relative, right? So again, having those foundational discussions internally as a founder is important to decide which direction do I want to go? Because for me, I can tell you for me to exit my business, I have to get a really serious multiple because I'm going to make that money in X amount of years anyway, right? So why am I why am I taking your money now and leaving? It's a very hard decision for me now because I'm so profitable. Whereas others, they're barely breaking even. They're barely making money. So if they can get somebody to pay a, you know, three to five X multiple when the company is barely profitable and they were going to take it to the next stage, well, great. Good for you. But it's just a, a matter of the starting point. Where do you start from and where do you want to end? That, that has so much clarity right now. Uh, it basically is figure out your goals, your end goals, and reverse engineer the model you want to take. That's Correct. Stuff, basically. Okay. Okay. That's wonderful. As you said, it's not your first venture. And even if it was, it's still a five-year experience, right? Along this way, we all learn as founders, as entrepreneurs, like the moment we stop learning, we stop progressing. So my question to you, along this way, what do you think were the most inspirational and like learning full resources for you? Maybe in forms of books, speakers, masterminds, mentors, if you could name two to three names or like titles of books or or other resources, what, what would those be? I'll be completely honest. I, I'm not a reader. So books are not something that I look for knowledge or inspiration from. I'm an introvert. So I don't necessarily speak to that many people seeking mentorship and advice. My attitude to business is is problem solving. And I think that's the typical, the, the right definition for an entrepreneur. It's not only un, being unemployable because you, we are, entrepreneurs are the worst employees, but really to be a successful entrepreneur, your number one drive and thing that makes you excited is solving problems. When there are no problems, you actually become a little bit bored. You're looking for problems because, hey, I need to get busy. So I don't have resources or you know people that I go to or books or mentors or anything like that. For me, it's all about here's the problem, what's the solution? And there's always a solution to a problem. And my wife kind of you know recently has mentioned this is like something goes down in the software and gets shut down or the server something happened. And and back many many years ago, maybe ten years ago, I would stress, I would worry, I would get upset. And now I say, okay, what's the solution? And I only focus on the things that I can control. So I can't make AWS, you know, restart. <laughs> it's, it's not something within my scope. So why am I going to be worried about that, right? I'm only worried about the things that are within my control. And, and my focus is really all about problem solving. So I don't think I've got a good answer for you as to the resources side, but you are the best resource. The, the mm -hmm. key here, though, is that you manage the things you have control over and relinquish control of the things you're not and trust the people that you're relinquishing to, to actually be as invested as you are. And that's kind of, it's, it's, it's not an easy thing to achieve, but that's kind of the, 
the ultimate goal you want to you want to have is focus on what you can let somebody else worry about the rest and then trust them for it what do you think would be some things martin that you would say to maybe like a younger version of yourself let's say three or five years ago because you've basically you've learned a lot right through this SaaS journey about hiring about the product market fit pains scaling what are the things you, you think you would really love to to know when you started from now perspective, like, oh, how much time it would solve you? Like, what are those things that you think are valuable that you learned along the way? Yeah, I mean, again, I think that the number one thing that I've learned in this, in running this business, well, there's two things that I think are mm-hmm. probably valuable to your audience. Number one is that development takes way longer than you ever estimate. Now, different developers are better at estimating things. So being appreciative of what it takes to build a product, the way I think about it is if you have to build a car from scratch, you know, can you do it? No, you need a bunch of mechanics. These mechanics, where are they going to get the parts from? How is it going to be pieced together? It's too many elements, the too many lines of code that it can't be created overnight. So respect and appreciate your, your technical team because they are building your car. And you want to make sure that that car drives properly and that doesn't fall off and the wheels come off and all that kind of stuff. So to me, I was always, especially, you know, five years ago, it says like, it's only a button here and a link there and let's just get it done. Like, how long can it possibly take? And then they say it's 48 hours and then it takes a week. You know what I mean? Just be respectful. Uh, If you don't know something, let them do it. And, and, you know, if they constantly don't meet their, their own deadlines, Well, then you got somebody that's not estimating their work properly. But if they say seven days and you want it in one, don't be unrealistic and expect it in one. It's going to take seven. So that's probably the the number one thing that I've taken away. The second thing that I've taken away in running this business is that you're going to have copycats in software. It's, It's just inevitable. You know, like software is a commodity. So as a founder, try to focus on brand and product as your key differentiator. And if that's not your forte, maybe it's your content, maybe it's your positioning, whatever it is, but don't make it the code. Don't make it the software. Let somebody, something else within your company, something else stand out, be the differentiator to choose you over somebody else. Now, in our case, we build a persona, Alfred. And people tell me all the time, oh, is this is this Batman's butler? And I ever never even thought about Batman when I named the product, but it happens to be someone that works for you and he happens to be a butler. So that was coincidental. But it was more about that. It was all about positioning and where am I taking this company and who leads the company and putting myself out there like I'm doing right now, speaking with you. I think that can serve you better. I can tell you there's lots of great products that never hit the market and become successful because all the other elements are missing. Whereas there's lots of shitty products that are in the market that are marketed so well and, you know, that become, you know, powerhouses. So that's kind of the second thing that I would say is just focus on, on not just the code and how good this button is and how fast it is. It's really, are you solving a problem? And in software, your product has to do one of two things and hopefully both. It either makes somebody money or it saves them money. It's those two. Anything else is completely a waste of time trying to position it and this and that and the other. It just doesn't make any sense. So those are the two key things that I've taken away. I think I heard like maybe around five times already through the interview. And I think this is the theme of you vibing with your team is appreciation. You use this word quite a lot. 
And what it says is like, you respect the areas that you cannot control and you value like their contribution to it. A lot of times I see founders, they learn to be quick. And it's when you bootstrap, when you don't have resources, or if you borrowed resources, you want to move like, can we do it in three in three hours? Like, what do we need to do to be, right? So, but when you appreciate the people you work with, this really is, I think this, this is what creates longevity really in relationships because you can get things faster, but you burn through that, right? The, it gets hurt. So I really, I really think that that's the theme as well. Really theme of yeah, and it's not only... Not only that, it's it's empowering people. I'm as I said, I'm a perfectionist. So for me, it's a very difficult thing to do to say 80% is good enough. And the reason I've come to learn that 80% is good enough because the majority of your customers do not appreciate that extra 20% that you invest so much on. So for me, I think you know, appreciating that the customer doesn't always appreciate you as a, as a product and you know, like, for example, I, I treat everybody in my team almost as family. I mean, I have never met some of these people in person, but I treat them as family. I got to I'll give you a, a perfect example. I, I have a one employee. He's based out of Colombia. He wanted to go to the World Cup. So he went, he got tickets. He went to Qatar. He's there. And then I gave him an extra, an early pre-Christmas gift uh, so he could have extra spending money and do a few other things. And I mean, it's something that I do because I appreciate the, all the work that they've done throughout the year. And I can tell you, these people, if you look after them, especially your developers, they will go to war with you. They will wake up in the middle of a you know Sunday morning to help the product you know come back online because it didn't. And if you if you constantly being mean to them or you know abusive or you know set wrong expectations, these people are just going to go to another job that, like that quickly. You know, there's a lot of demand for developers, so finding the, the good people is hard. Keeping them is just as hard, if not harder. But building a culture is kind of almost the glue that that brings everybody together. Now, I I know this by myself. When I work with for something fulfilling, I can also wake up at four a.m. Like if if I really believe that that's 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 valuable, right? That's that's long term. The relationship is king. Relationship is Absolutely. king. Martin, what do you think would be the best ways for our audience to get in touch with you in case they have something to contribute to you if you are seeking help on something specific or maybe if they want to connect and see how you can help each other grow? What what are the maybe social media, the emails? Like what is the best way to get in touch? Yeah, the best and quickest way to contact me is via email, martin at meetalfred.com. Uh, you can also find me on, uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not as I said, I'm an introvert, so I'm not really on social media that much. So that's why email works for me very well. But yeah, I'm very you know approachable. If somebody wants to reach out, want advice or opinions or whatever, I have time for for a lot of people. Um, what I do say to, I'm not sure if your audience is really on the early stage of of you know development or in the middle or or towards the end. I've got experience throughout the the whole process, not a, not just in SaaS but outside. But I can tell you, being an entrepreneur is. I feel like it's not for everyone. I think that that again, the primary focus for you, it's not about launching a company. It's about solving a problem, and that's kind of what that theme that was mentioned about is. You know, if you have a problem you can, and you're good at finding solutions, that makes you for a, a great entrepreneur. But launching companies is very easy. It only costs you a couple of hundred dollars to set up a company in Delaware. You know, and and all of a sudden you're a CEO. One of the things that I always say is that I'm not a CEO. I'm a founder. And that is, I think, the right title for an entrepreneur, a true entrepreneur, because a CEO has, I think, tertiary education, which I don't have. They went to university, got degrees, and they have high-level experience of managing 
teams and accounts and business. I'm more of a, a problem solver that happens. I, I can solve problems in any business. You put me in whatever, I will find a problem and I will find a solution. Whereas I, that's why I've been successful in different types of industries. And I think true entrepreneurs can be successful in multiple industries. So hopefully that's valuable. Um, you know, calling yourself a CEO is 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 nice, but just know what you're good at and, and leave the rest to others. <laughs> well, CEO is a, is a team member in the company, right? When you're founder and CEO, it's good. But when you're just CEO, it can be just an employee. You don't Correct. necessarily found the company. Correct. I agree. Correct. I think what you said is more like not only problem solving, but probably problem finding in a way. <laughs> because it's one way to just see the, the obvious problem. The other one is see what's coming, right? It's, That's right. It's, it's from experience. What do you think should be the final thoughts for our interview to, to, to wrap this up? What do you think if our audience, if our founders could just take one thing out of this conversation, the most important one, what do you think that would be? Well, that's a hard question. Um, I think that if your audience is right, primarily focused on being software in SaaS, yes. I think something worth pointing out is that I think there is SaaS is, is at a time where it's evolving. Now, everybody thinks, oh, you know, monthly memberships and annual memberships and CAC and all these kind of, all that's wonderful. But again, what I always say to people is that there seems to be a saturation in software. Like every industry, it's almost very difficult to, to penetrate. There's so many players and whatnot. So what I think is, is going to happen is like, just because you see a hundred competitors that you you shouldn't go in. Uh, you you should definitely go in because there's a market for it. But how successful you'll be, that that's very very uh, difficult to judge. But I think software and SaaS is is at a point where it's hitting a maturity in the way that the sophistication of running a business. You, you know what I mean? Like I'm not sure I'm explaining this properly, but like in the, in SaaS infancy, everybody didn't know about CAC. He didn't know about you know churn, and they didn't know about all of these things. All of these things are very well known, and there's plenty of resources to learn about everything. So what you need to do to be successful is, yeah, you need to know about all of these things, but you really need to know your customer or be your customer and really be empathetic about what their problem is to be able to give them a, the right solution. It's not about all this other jargon. At the end of the day, your product has to do one of two things, make them money or save them money. And if you can focus on that as the foundation, I think you'll be successful. Michael Martinez, everyone. Martin, thank you for coming to the show today. No problem at all. Thanks for having me. SaaS Insiders, we'll see you in the next episodes. 